Welcome back, students, to Literature 209 of the Miskatonic University Remote Literature Program. This is Graphical Lit in Society and History, also known as the Comics Course. Today, we're going to talk about gay Asian androids on game shows, or at least we're going to talk about each of those things separately. But I do sincerely hope that somebody writes a fan fiction that includes all three, and if you do it with at least enough stick figure drawings to count as a comic, you will get extra credit for the end of the semester. All right, let's jump into our bookkeeping. I am Professor Hamby. This is the TA Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. Remember to leave assignments and questions in the comments area. I'll also provide at the end of the class session some email and Twitter to get a hold of me. Uh, quick update on the Miskatonic Manticores. Dr. Feckett wanted me to let people know that the Bakery Science Department is about ready to start hosting new sessions. They are still looking for a few more people to round out their StarCraft II team. However, they have had some trouble finding people because they do need people who are not allergic to the nightshade family of plants. So if you are not and you like StarCraft, please sign up. Uh, also, for those who have been concerned about Thomas, uh, we do have good evidence that Thomas is alive and well at the expedition site. He will probably be there when the icebreakers can get back there. We have discovered that he is using the internet access that's available by a satellite feed for about three hours a day from the site. Attempts to reach him by email have failed. He is apparently going to Google and querying Icelandic Viking settlements. So I think it's wonderful that he's continuing his education even while stranded uh, in Antarctica. I also had some people concerned about my diet. Uh, now, I mentioned last week that I primarily survive on Japanese Kit Kats and whiskey, and some people seem to take that a little too seriously. That is, of course, absurd. Uh, my diet, while I live isolated in my office here in the literature building at Miskatonic University, is overseen by Dr. Yonji, uh, or Yonbi, of the Nutritional Science Department. She also oversees the commissary. And she makes sure that I eat more than Japanese Kit Kats. For example, uh, she brought me these wonderful red bean mochi, which I've been enjoying, and these Korean turtle chips that taste like churros. And, and special treat, she heard I was doing the comics course again and brought me this Hellboy uh, whiskey with cinnamon in it. I think it's real cinnamon, and that has to be healthy because it's like organic or something, right? And uh, so this has been rounding out my diet, and she varies it in other ways at other times. So I don't blame Thomas anymore. I, what does that mean? Don't worry about it. Okay. Um, so, I mean, clearly, I am getting diversity in my diet. I am being overseen by a professional. She's an old, old friend of mine that goes back to our grad school days here at Miskatonic together. She's clearly forgiven me for the thing involving her sister and roommate and mother. Um, and I'm fine. I'm fine. I don't want anybody to worry about me. I have also had some questions. Some dogs could be heard in the recording of the last class session. Uh, for those who are participating purely by remote session, you don't need to worry about it. The Dean has been releasing the hounds between class sessions because there has been some tarrying in the open green. Uh, so if you are transitioning from full remote to mixed, just be aware of that, okay? So anyway, let's get in. Uh, I had some questions about the social justice component of the class. Specifically, somebody asked, um, are we just going to be doing social justice crap in the class from now on? And in response to that, what I give you is Wonder Woman hitting on Laura Croft. Uh, she is leaning up against Laura Croft. They're touching elbows. They are kind of looking romantically at each other, and Wonder Woman says, Croft, you have the keen eye of Artemis and the courage of heroes, yet everything else about you is a gift of Aphrodite. And Croft replies, well, uh, certainly makes for a better pickup line than did it hurt from when you, felt when you fell from heaven. Knowing what I know of you, you'd land on your feet. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, she's hitting on her. And I want to follow that up with more art by the same artist of Wonder Woman tying herself to Laura Croft and they're making out. Um, 
So, first of all, the artist is Stefan Sajic. I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. If I'm not, I apologize. You can find him on DeviantArt and some sites as Nebaziel, N-E-B-E-Z-I-A-L. Uh, his Twitter is at S-T-J-E-P-A-N-S-E-J-I-C. Uh, he's worked for major companies. Uh, he's done work for Witchblade, Aquaman, Justice League Odyssey. He's an amazing artist. He's also an amazing storyteller. Some of his own works are just mind-blowing. Uh, he's done an adult series called Sunstone, which is currently in its sixth volume, um, which is about mature relationships and involves a number of risque elements, but it's not sexually explicit, uh, although it certainly pushes the line at times. And he touches on a intersection uh, in comics about relationships, sexuality, humor, as well as just great action comics. He does amazing action comics as well. So why am I replying with these Stefan Sajic images of an obviously lesbian Wonder Woman? Because if you're going to describe my class session talking about the queerness of Wonder Woman as social justice warriors crap, uh, then I'm going to shove more lesbian Wonder Woman in your face. Uh, because, frankly, my advice, my life decision, my life choice advice for you is to go get a Louisville Slugger, take a really coarse sandpaper, about a 300, uh, some Gorilla Glue, attach the sandpaper to the baseball bat, and pleasure yourself with it. Um, and what I mean by pleasure yourself with it is shove it in every orifice you have repeatedly. Um, now, I don't worry, this is not going to in, in, involve your urethra, because you probably don't have a penis. Um, just shut up. Get out of my class. Go find another class to go to. We're not going to agree on this, because I am not talking from a social justice standpoint. And if you automatically assume that everything about diversity is about social justice, then we're not going to agree. Now, I do think there's a valid argument for social justice in comics, because social justice can include diversity, and we can have legitimate conversations about diversity in comics in order to right wrongs of representation. Representation can have a clear relationship to uh, uh, how people see the world. Comics have an effect on the world as well as being a reflection of it. And everybody, uh, you know, if everybody looks at the world, if every color of kid, if every sexuality of kid, if every identity of kid looks at the world and sees politicians like them and sees world leaders like them and sees superheroes like them in books and heroes like them in movies, uh, I think that'd be a fine thing. But I'll be honest, that's not my primary motivator. And it's not the motivator I come from as a comic book reader. It's not the motivation I come from as a teacher. Although we can have a legitimate discussion about whether or not I should. We can have a discussion uh, about whether or not in academia we should push for inclusion to change the world as well as studying what it is. But I, I come from the standpoint of being a young kid that learned to read from comics. And I picked up comics and I saw Peter Parker as Spider-Man, I thought it was awesome. And I saw Bruce Wayne as Batman, and I thought he was awesome. And I saw Hal Jordan as Green Lantern, and I thought he was awesome. And these are all white guys. And they were all drawn and written by white guys. And as I got older, I discovered other kinds of comics. I discovered comics written by guys from France. And I eventually discovered comics written by Japanese women. And I discovered all kinds of comics. And I thought they were all awesome. And when I read comics by Japanese women who lived in Tokyo, I wanted to discover more that they had done. And I just want it all. I'm a greedy bastard. I want to read comics about everybody, from everybody. Now, that's not about social justice. That's about enjoying reading. Um, and maybe we'll have discussions about social justice at some point. And we can have debates about that, potentially. Uh, I... You can probably guess how I fall on that spectrum already. But my baseline is just enjoying reading comics. And I am not going to entertain debates about that. If you do not enjoy diversity, then you should not be in a literature class. Go sign up for the psychology department where they don't really know how to read anyway. Um, 
And, and and go shove your head in a blender. I just don't care. Get lost. So let's move on and talk about actually enjoying reading comics, okay? Mm-hmm. So today we're... I decided today, since we want to talk about stories and talk about enjoying comics, I'm going to share with people four things I've read in the last week and that I've enjoyed. Four. One, two, three, four. Um, one is a manga series called Chobits. One is a special that was put out a few months ago by DC Comics called DC Festival of Heroes, the Asian Superhero Celebration. I only got around to reading it recently. One put out last month by DC, DC Pride, which was in celebration of LGBTQTIA+. Is that the full version they do these days? Yes. That's a mouthful. So I'm just going to say queer as a generic term from here on. And if... That is not the most accepted term for being as inclusive as possible these days. Feel free to give me feedback about it. I will correct myself as I can in the future. But I also know not everybody agrees on these terms. So please just know that when I say queer from here on out, I am trying to be as inclusive as possible in my use of that term. Even if I'm wrong, that's my attempt. Uh, And then the last book is a nonfiction piece called Form of a Question. So we're going to start with Chobits. Chobits is a manga series by Clamp. Uh, For those who aren't familiar with Clamp, they started as a doshinshi circle back in the mid-80s. Now, a lot of Western readers I find who come into my class think that doshinshi is adult, uh, homemade fan comics. They're not. Doshinshi just means fan comics. If they're adult, they have the descriptor of hentai attached. Uh, the fact that you can go into sites and in Romanji type doshinshi and it all comes up as adult is just a reflection, unfortunately, of ignorance. Much doshinshi are simply fan comics and, you know, they may work off a lot of properties and some circles, which are collaborative groups, then go on to develop their own properties and try to become mainstream creators, which is what Clamp did. So hmm? they're fan fiction mangas? It's often, yes. Okay. Um, although they could feature original work sometimes. Certainly as they move into doing more original works, they often try to become professionals. Uh, and Clamp is actually uh, an accurate name. They meant to be called Clump, but they didn't spell it in Romanji correctly. But Clamp is actually kind of cooler, I think. Yeah, I like it more. Um, it is usually stylized as all uppercase. Uh It was originally 11 women. It is now down to four. Seven have left over time. But it's been a good while. I mean, they've been active for 35 years. So, uh, I mean, the four that are left are heading into their 60s. And they've done a lot of works. Now, their works were originally largely in the shoujo market, uh, aimed towards younger girls. By the time they did Chobits, they really had hit the point of being cross-market. I believe this was marketed as shonen. It really was shonen and shoujo in a lot of ways, I would argue. And a little bit of seinen. It explored themes that were well beyond what works marketed to teenagers usually did. Uh, It was serialized between 2001 and 2002. We are now at the 20th anniversary of it, and they've put it out in four beautiful volumes You can also get it electronically, which is what I did. Here I have the covers to volumes one and two of it. The first one shows uh, one of the main characters, Chi, who's sitting on a platform in the air with her hair blowing around her. And another one is the cover of her laying in a bed with these doll figures, which are featured in a book in a book. Now, to talk about... I'm going to try to keep my discussion of this spoiler-free, but I do want to go back to the theme I had earlier about wanting stories of diversity. This is a story written by women in Japan for a diverse market. And it is not a story I think I would have read in quite the same way from anyone else other than these people. These specific people, other women would not have necessarily written that the story. Um, and, and it's wonderful. And the story is in a near future where these things called Perscoms. On the screen, I have a panel from Chobits. And there is a figure who looks like an attractive young woman, but she has these strange sort of things coming out of the side of her head. And that's because she is a Perscom. And it says, a Perscom, huh? Um, 
she is essentially an android. This is a future where instead of people using tablets and smartphones and laptops, they envision that people often choose to have these artificial companions. And if they're full human size, they are usually extremely powerful computers who are capable of self-learning and emulating human behavior with AIs, which is what this one is. But there are also smaller ones that are less capable. For example, one character on the show has one that's basically the equivalent of a smartphone. It makes calls, it reminds them of stuff, it has a very basic personality, but it can't do what a full-sized one can do, a human-sized one. Uh, this next panel shows a figure. You, If you're watching along with the video version of the class, you saw this figure in the form of the dolls on one of the covers, but it looks kind of like a rag doll, but it's almost like a bunny ragdoll shape with extraordinarily long ears. It has its feet touching water with rings running out from there and motes of light coming down from a dark sky. This is a panel from the book within a book, a book that is used both to clue characters into things that are happening as it seems to be written about what they're experiencing, and it also explores some of the thematic elements of the story deeply. Now, on the screen is Hideki. Hideki is the protagonist. You see him reading one of these books, and he says, Share what's most precious? But what's that? Perscoms and humans. The book is cluing him in that there's a common element between perscoms and humans. That they don't... And, of course, we find out what it is in the series. I'm not going to spoil it for you. Uh, Hideki is a genuinely nice guy, and he's a little clueless. He is also a useful viewpoint for the reader because he has moved to Tokyo from somewhere out in the country where Perscoms are extremely rare, and now they are central to the plot of the series, and we have to learn a lot about them, and it's useful to learn about them as Hideki learns about them. And speaking of Perscoms, we have Chi. Chi is a Perscom and is the other main character of the series. She is the stimulus for exploring the core theme, which is... Not, what is the nature of artificial life, but how do you define love? Now, traditionally in Western literature, when a non-human figure and a human character fall in love, uh, it's often about external elements to the protagonist. You know, can the object of their affection love them back? Will they be able to have a family? And these questions do come up. They are relevant. I mean, I think those things are fundamentally human things. But they're not the core question of the series, which is how do you define love? And the answer here is not external. In Western literature, that is often, you can only love something if it can love you back. You can only have a relationship, you can only have true love if that thing loves you back. Love is this invisible thing between people. And this goes back to old Western motifs about love. Love will change the world. Love will set you free. Love will change reality. Um, there is a much different idea in manga with the Eastern philosophies and cultural background where love is something that's defined internally. And it may reflect something in the external world or it may not. It is a personal experience. It is not defined by the object of the affection. Perhaps not surprising from the culture that brought us marrying body pillows. And hopefully washing them frequently. Um, and boob mouse pads. God. Which is a whole other question. There's usually a valley in the cleavage. It's disturbing. Um, it's, it's so you can put your... So it's like, it's like a hand rest. Is that what they told you? That, that's what they're described as. That's not what it's for. Oh, I know. I'm just explaining what they're supposedly for. And you know this. I got curious. I had to know why. I had to know the excuse. There's some things you never unsee from a Google image search. Just saying. I know. So, uh, you will not see that Google image search in the course of reading Chobits. Um, there's no explicit content. There are questions about, you know, what part of a relationship has to be sexual. Now, in Western uh, mythologies, it's often critical. You know, in 
say, uh, uh, The Little Mermaid, if you ignore some of the historical versions that are extremely dark and tragic, and the happy versions, uh, they're hap you know that they are happy because they get married and have kids. Well, could Ariel and the prince have been in love with them never able to consummate a physical relationship? And these are questions that Chobitz asks. Um, and, and the answers, in typical uh, manga fashion, are that in a lot of ways it's heartwarming and beautiful, but it's not perfect. It's not a perfect happiness. They do have to give things up for happiness. They slow needles to the heart. And, and that is a much more complicated view than you often see in Western literature. Um, and, and I love it, it, it because it, it's sweet, but it's bittersweet at the same time. And it feels more real in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so let's move on to one of the DC titles that I wanted to talk about today. The DC Festival of Heroes, the Asian uh, Superhero Celebration. These are Asian characters uh, universally, although there are some non-Asian characters that make guest appearances in the stories. And Asian creators are involved in the stories. I don't think that all the creators are Asian. You know, for example, you may have a non-Asian writer with an Asian artist. But they tried to use Asian creators as much as possible. I really enjoyed this mix of stories, although there were some weaknesses. For example, uh, there is the Vietnamese-American Green Lantern who was introduced in a YA novel. Now, I do want to say Green Lantern Legacy is a YA novel. And it's obviously geared more towards young adults, you know, 13, 12, that kind of age range. And I thought it was good. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was perfect for its audience. I'd love to see more of him. They did a really short story with him in here that I thought was stupid. Uh, he's in space fighting a Red Lantern, and the Red Lantern is making jokes about his Vietnamese garb being a dress. Why would an alien from another planet give a crap about that? Why would an alien who travels around alien cultures all the time, you know, have such an Earth-Western-centric idea of the garb? It was a cheap, stupid joke. <laughs> Meanwhile, you had a lot of strong stories in here mm -hmm. that I thought were good. Um, however, this was not one of them. This was the new character that they talked a bunch about and they've done a fair bit of promotion about their new Asian character. Big, big deal. The Monkey Prince. Now, I just want to say right off the bat, I've got a huge problem here. Huge! What is that on his chest? An armor. An M. An M. Now, he is from... This is building off an idea from Chinese folklore. Is there such a thing as an M in Chinese folklore? As far as I'm aware, no. No, I can go and tell you not. Um, I don't remember off the top of my head what Chinese characters are called in Chinese. and Japanese, they're called kanji. And that is, that is not a kanji for monkey. That is an M for monkey. An M in English. An M from Latin. It is also stands for morons. Morons. Now, I know the executives at D.C., probably have heads clouded from snorting coke in the sauna. But come on, people. You're celebrating an Asian character with the English M on their chest? Apparently. I'm assuming that's why they put it. Now, I understand that if you're going with the hypothetical excuse of this is an Asian-American kid, a teenager who's grown up in America and speaks English... But, okay, okay, this gets into a whole other design issue, which is, what kid would go, you know what I want to put on my, ch you know what would be styling? I grew up in the age of Beyonce and Jay-Z and uh, um, Dua Lipa, and, and putting a big letter on my chest would be cool. No. 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 This is this is shite. This is pure shite. I mean, yeah. Um, now, let's get to the second element of this that I have a problem with. 
which is the originality and the appeal factor. Now, clearly what DC is trying to do, and they so much has said this explicitly um, in public communication about the introduction of the character, is that this is going to be a big character to both celebrate Asian influences in comics and, frankly, they want it to appeal to Asian audiences. The simple fact is that Asia is a huge market. China by itself has plenty of money for entertainment. Uh, movies have shown that. Movies have a huge market in China. Um, so comics could have a huge market in China. And so they want this to appeal to them. Now, for those who aren't familiar with The Monkey King, it is an old set of folklore from China. It is well known throughout Asia. It is well known in the West. Uh, uh, you can find tons of translations of it. It's called Journey to the West. Uh, there have been movies about it. Uh, but, in fact, a fairly recent Chinese movie, I believe, uh, telling the story. And it, it is as well known there as, say, Norse and Greek mythology are known in our society. Now, Rowan, uh, mm -hmm. Looking at the viewpoint of somebody, you know, who isn't old and gray like me, mm -hmm. uh, you, you said you agreed with that a little too quickly. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. Um, if somebody said to you, okay, Ro, we want to capture what's hot and young. We want stylish. We want trending. We want a comic book character that's going to say, relevant to you. He's going to be the son of Zeus. What would you say? That's nice. Exactly. Exactly. Um, bit of trivia. There is an, one of the best known superheroes in Korea, or sorry, supervillains, is an extremely minor character from Marvel Comics. He's so minor, I can't even remember his name off the top of my head. But do you know why he's so popular in Korea? Why? Because he names his motivation for robbing people is to have money to help afford his studying for entrance exams. Which is a motivation that communicates so well to them that he's been picked up as a pop culture icon there. I think everyone can feel that. I, I think the Japanese certainly could as well. So, I mean, th this underscores, this character who is a trivia question to me is a pop culture icon there because They're he's relevant. That's exact, a relevant thing. Right. Journey to the West, as well known as it may be in Asia, as well known as the stories of Olympus are to us, is not relevant to their daily lives. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to resonate with them. This character is going to be used in Shazam, apparently, because the story involve, uh, has Billy Batson at the end. Uh, he's probably going to be featured there, and then he's going to quickly become a trivia question. Because it's a failed diversity attempt, and they always drop those. And unless unless somebody writes him so well that he really catches on. Mm -hmm. I don't see that as likely, though. Yeah. And take that stupid F and M off his chest. Um, okay, I'll, let's go to another story that worked for me. Uh, there's a story featuring Connor Hawk. He is the half-Asian son of Green Arrow, Oliver Queen. I didn't know that. Yes, half-Asian. Um, Oliver Queen has other half-Asian kids because Oliver Queen's gotten all over the world. Now, I, I'm not saying Oliver Queen has yellow fever here, folks. Oliver Queen has uterus fever. <laughs> Oliver Queen is the Captain Kirk of the Justice League. He never saw... A, if There's a reason when Green Arrow and Green Lantern had adventures, they were always on Earth. If Green Lantern had taken him to space... He would have been hidden on everything with boobs in space. Add six boobs, he'd hit on it three times. Just saying. Oh, Oliver God. Queen is the horn dog of the Justice League of America. Um, which, given Green Lantern was on the team and he was a test pilot, is saying something. Anyway, so Green Lantern, uh, sorry, Green Arrow, uh, also had another half-Asian kid by a different mother uh, who's featured in another story in this book about some sort of kawaii fever dream. I didn't care for that one. It was a little too Asian, like trying too hard to be Asian to me. Mm. And uh, But what I did like in a bunch of the stories in this book, and th what this panel is showing 
is Connor Hawk sitting down with his family, his two mothers, and the Chinese Superman, often called the New Superman in the books. I, I kind of like them to move away from the name New Superman to something that's more him. I think over time, the writers have done a good job at building up him as a character. I did not know he existed. That's so cool. Yes, and, and the books have not been super widespread, super popular, but I think they've definitely had their following. And basically, his abilities are based on magic. They're based around this balance of yin-yang uh, in his body, this life force energy. So his powers come from a totally different place than Superman's. Um, and he has some different abilities. They're not all exactly like Superman's. Uh, but he was basically an attempt by the Chinese government to create their own Superman figure. That's cool. And I'd love to see him built up enough that they could change his name away from Superman to something more individually distinct mm -hmm. without making him disappear into the background. Mm -hmm. So until they can do that, I think it's fine that they call him Superman. But I would hope to see them eventually build up identity. Oddly, I feel differently about this than I do Miles Morales as Spider-Man, because I feel he is Spider-Man. Yeah, he's, he's a different universe Spider-Man. Yeah. So he and, can keep the name. Well, it's complex. It's weird. Mythology is mythology, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway... Uh, in the story, these two superheroes work together, but they didn't necessarily jibe right away. Connor Hawk has his own feelings that are a little abrasive. This guy was trying to be more friendly, the new Superman. And, but he, Connor was out trying to get some of the food for the meal. It broke during the scuffle. This Superman brought a replacement that was Chinese uh, and tasted a bit differently. And they're all sitting down, breaking bread, having a moment of communion. Now, when you let somebody into your home and you share a meal with them, that is a powerful symbolism of accepting them as a part of your extended family. And that's what they're doing here with this new Superman. Uh, and I think it's a wonderful symbol. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and I think it is a great way of bringing an Asian element into the, the story through the food uh, that is different from just saying, hey, I'm Asian. Uh, you know, Asian identity is often oversimplified, as identities many places are oversimplified. You know, and people say, oh, well, you know, you have family heritage from Asia. That's what makes you Asian. Is it really, though? I mean, because language, food, history, traditions, holiday. I mean, there's so much more involved. And this is one of the few things uh, in here that really brings those elements out. And I like that. So let's move on now to DC Pride. Uh, like the DC Asian uh, celebration, DC Pride came out uh, to be associated with Pride Month. Uh, the Asian one was in association with uh, uh, the month of Asian history recognition. I forget what people call it, but you know what I'm talking about, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so June was Pride Month, and so they wanted to celebrate both uh, queer characters and queer creators. And so they had queer creators working on queer characters. Uh, there is a story in here with Alan Scott as Green Lantern, who's featured on the cover. The cover, for those who can't see it right now, features Batwoman very prominently in the foreground. She's probably the best-known queer character at DC right now, also having her own TV show. Uh, Alan Scott, Renee uh, Montoya is The Question. Uh, we see Poison Ivy, we see a new character, Dreamer, Midnighter, and several other lesser-known characters, uh, including one of the uh, speedsters at the bottom. And the stories in here I thought were good overall. I did have... I didn't like them as much as the Asian ones. And in part that was because while some of the Asian ones centered on their identity as Asians, including one uh, with Katana... That was about identity as Asians in America, and can you be both Asian and American? Uh, some of them were just about them as people, like the the. Oh no, there's the hounds. Uh, well, there there goes another language arts student. Um, that's a. All right, sorry for that interlude, folks. The hounds apparently got a hold of a real screamer there. Um, is Rowan, you stepped out of the office. Are we okay to continue at this point? Yeah, the ambulances are gone. Okay, excellent. So, 
I don't remember exactly where I was at. Apologize if I repeat myself. Uh, the Asian collection, I thought one of its strengths was that it both talked about being Asian. Uh, for example, the Katana story, and you can't have too many Katana stories. I loved her all the way back to the original Batman and the Outsider series. Um, featured stuff about being Asian. For example, the one that she was in asked questions about can you be both Asian and American, which in this day and age of continuing racism against Asians, which is nothing new. We're going to talk about more about that in the Kung Fu comics class session. Uh, but, you know, in the day, in this day and age, when we have to talk about uh, educational movements like Stop Asian Hate, it is still very relevant. But there were other stories that were just about Asian characters being people, and I think that's strong. DC made a decision with the Pride issue where all the stories are about being queer in some way. Now, is that a bad thing? I think it's still important. Well, it, it, it's interesting. A, I don't know if they made this an editorial mandate, or if it's just that's the stories they happen to get. Um, to me, it makes the issue... It's probably not going to age... Some of the stories aren't going to age as well, because they're going to be fairly forgettable, hopefully over time, as these sorts of stories become more commonly accepted. But it is also a powerful statement. Now, I said a while back that I didn't care about social justice. I wanted diversity of stories. However, if you want diversity of stories, which I do, that means including stories from people who want social justice. And clearly, there are creators here who had things to say about being queer, being queer people in society, uh, and the existence of queer comic book characters. And I enjoyed reading those things. I thought they were interesting. Uh, uh, they didn't have a resonance with me that I think will make these stories iconic. But let's just be brutally honest. With all the comics that are published each month in the world, how many of them become iconic and are remembered? That doesn't keep us from reading a bunch of the ones that aren't iconic every month. And I think people will enjoy these. And I think it's okay for this one to slowly over time become forgettable as it's normalized. Right. I mean, that's what we would hope, actually, right? Mm -hmm. We would hope for this to become eventually a trivia question. Like, can you believe it was once exceptional for, you know, gay characters to exist in comics? I mean, we would hope that people yeah. would eventually be surprised that that was ever an issue. At least I would hope that. Yeah, um, but I did think it was interesting that there aren't characters that are just characters where their sexuality isn't relevant. Uh, in this collection, it is a difference. Uh, there certainly are very strong gay characters, and the most well-known one is the one uh, front and center on here, which is Batwoman, in part because she has her own TV show right now. However, I think the Renee Montoya question has over the years really grown into her own character, there is a story here with Alan Scott, Green Lantern. Now, I know I pointed that out in our last class session as a poor introduction of a gay character. I actually thought they did a good job in this story of establishing more depth to it. They didn't say anything really new that they didn't in his origin as a gay character, his retcon as a gay character. Um, but I thought they did a good job of presenting someone who's older, from a different time in America and having him represent why he's been so hesitant to come out as gay over the years. Which is an important story to tell. It's never too late to come out. Yeah. Uh, and his son is gay, and says that his son, Obsidian, uh, was his inspiration to come out, which I, I thought was Aww. sweet. So I do want to point out uh, a, a couple of things that I did really enjoy in this issue, and I did enjoy the issue. You know, I have a bias towards preferring to see diversity just shown through strong, interesting characters rather than sort of preaching from the pages. Um, but th I thought this issue had a couple moments that really made me happy, too, and I want to share those. Uh, one is I have here an image on the screen from the Poison uh, Ivy Harley Quinn story where they're making out and they're kissing. And the writer was Mariko Tamaki. The art by Amy Reader and colors by Marisa Louise, I thought were just exceptional. They were perfect for the story. And this is not the first time they've come back together since the straight washing of them a few years ago. But 
it is the first time that they have been so obviously identified as a queer couple. They were featured in the Valentine's Day issue in February as well, so but n not as strongly stated as it is here. And they are absolutely, no doubt about it, in popular, widely read, entertaining comics, the highest profile queer couple. No, no, no doubt about it. And DC actually has a commitment going back a number of years to diversity in comics. So I don't think that they're anti-queer, uh, but I do think a few years ago there was a bit of, a bit of straight washing attempted when they wanted to add ambiguity because maybe some of them were uncomfortable, some elements of the company were uncomfortable, uh, with, and maybe it was higher up, maybe it was from Warner Brothers, at how queer identified a major character was that they were building tv and movie properties around mm. money far outside just comic books and i'm glad to see them reverse course on that yeah um next up is extrano uh i want to talk about extrano in here a little bit but i want to go backwards first uh the image on the screen is of extrano as he was originally introduced in the millennium miniseries back in 1988 so, 33 years ago, I mean, he looks ridiculous. A giant right earring of gold to show that he's gay. A giant purple cape and green pants and a loose yellow shirt with an orange belt and blue boots. And he's incredibly flamboyant and looks kind of queenish. I mean, uh, comically queenish. Yeah, I was about to say, he looks like a stereotype. He does. Um... And while the image is a little cringeworthy, it is also uh, worth noting that he was the first openly gay hero published by DC Comics, and he was HIV positive during a time when HIV was seen as not only the gay disease, but the gay male disease, and proof of those deviants, and they probably got it from sex with monkeys. This was actually a commonly accepted theory. Did what you the not know that? No! Yes, HIV had been identified in some monkeys, apparently, and so it was widely believed by many people, well, I mean, of course, if they're gay, who knows what they're willing to do? They probably have sex with monkeys, and then they spread it to each other. <sighs> right. Um, but this, this was the kind of thing at the time. So by 1988, when this stuff was still fairly widely said by people, for them to introduce a character that at the time was not only a superhero, but going to be central to the future of the DC Universe, which didn't happen, it got retconned and this and that, um, because they didn't really have a good idea of what to do with this group called the New Guardians that were supposed to replace the Guardians of the Universe. But let's keep in mind, this was the first time the Guardians had abandoned their post in four and a half billion years. Now, in the 33 years since, they've done it about a dozen more times. They need um, breaks. Yeah, apparently a lot of them. Um, but at the time, it was pretty revolutionary. And Extrano kind of disappeared after that, but it was pretty bold of DC. And he got reintroduced by Steve Orlando in 2015. Now, that was six years ago, long before uh, the Pride stuff of just the last year or two. So DC's been attempting to reintroduce gay characters with gay creators for a while now. Uh, and we see this re-envisioning of Extrano here. He is an attractive man with some graying hair, uh, with a neat trim black mustache and beard, as well as short hair where it's not graying, uh, wearing a more constrained sort of cream-colored top and greenish pants and a purple cape. Um, it still probably sounds silly to describe, but it's, it's a lot more restrained as a superhero outfit. He looks very stylish. Yes, and he looks like an attractive, slightly older man. Mm -hmm. um, and this is sort of their reimagining of him. And this particular image of him is from the Pride comic uh, last month. So they've taken this first gay character. And by the way, first openly gay character at DC, I think he might be the first openly gay character in comics, period. Or, or at least from Marvel and DC, the two major publishers. The two juggernauts. Yeah, I, I think they may have taken some characters who previously had existed with no comment on their sexuality, like North Star at Marvel, which may have predated it, but I think this may have been the first one introduced as a gay character. That's awesome that they're bringing him back. Yeah, 
And I wouldn't mind seeing more of him. He's introduced in this issue when John Constantine is hitting on him in a bar. Which, of course, John Constantine would do. He's queer? Uh, John Constantine is meta-queer. John Constantine um, is a trisexual. He'll try anything. That's awesome. I didn't know that. Yeah, and, and not just try... But if he didn't like it once, he does it again. And if he didn't like it the second time, he figures a third time uh, uh, needs testing. Um, it is established in DC lore that he used to be sexual partners with King Shark. Oh, God. The walking shark. Yes. We broke my TA, folks. We broke my TA. So now I want you to imagine King Shark, John Constantine, Santana Threesome. Oh, there's so many layers wrong. Sorry. That's all right. Take a moment. It's all right, folks. Um, I, I kind of feel like I need to just quit the class at this point. I don't know if I'll do any better, but let's go on to a transsexual. Uh, so on the screen, what I have here is a screenshot from a Supergirl episode, the TV show Supergirl, with the actress Nicole Maines, and then below it, uh, her superhero character that she plays on Supergirl being introduced in comics for the very first time in this Pride issue, uh, who goes by the name of Dreamer. Uh, the character's uh, real name, so to speak, is Nia Nall. Uh, the character is Dreamer, apparently somehow related to Neuronal who is the dreamer, uh, dream girl of the Legion of Superheroes in the 31st century. That character is Neuronal. This is Neonal. And Supergirl lore, she's apparently somehow associated with Legion, because she's associated with Coral Docks, Brainiac 5. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff going on in the Supergirl show about multiple universes and the DC multiverse. I don't know if time travel is a part of that, or if the Legion's from another universe. But this Neonal is a trans who has transitioned from male to female. And so this is the first trans superhero, really. And I liked her character in here. She is romantically involved with Brainiac 5. I don't know if this Brainiac 5 is uh, romantically involved with Supergirl or not. There might be some sort of poly relationship there. If so, I think that'd be kind of cool. But... Dreamer has precognitive abilities like Dream Girl. She's apparently half of that alien race that Dream Girl is associated with. And she's also able to channel some of her access to dreaming. I don't know if this is Neil Gaiman's dreaming. Into these sort of energy weapons. I like the character design here. I like the idea. I've always kind of liked precog fighter characters. Um, as a kind of combination of smash-up action with a sort of intelligence component. So I look forward to seeing what else they do with this character. Uh, I'll be interested. And I like the idea of a trans character. And in the story, one of the strong points I thought of the story was they didn't really talk about her being trans much. They just showed her. Now, I know this kind of contradicts what I said earlier, where queerness was central to everything. And it was obviously central to introducing her. But they didn't make a huge point about it. They introduced her. They showed the romantic relationship with Quirrell Docks. And I'm curious to see more. It's important to normalize being trans. And, again, I just want to see all kinds of stories. Mm -hmm. uh, the last one I'm going to talk about real quickly is Form of a Question by Andrew J. Roston, art by Kate Connesnow. Uh The cover on the screen shows the title and what is clearly the main character who's highlighted in yellow with the blue background being the stage set of Jeopardy. This is the autobiographical story by Andrew Roston. He was the quintessential geek growing up. He had trouble fitting in. He had trouble establishing relationships with people. He had an excellent memory for, for dates and facts. And he always wanted to go on Jeopardy. Uh, his grandfather encouraged him to do it. He had a close relationship with his grandfather. One of the few good, strong relationships he had. Um, and eventually he got on Jeopardy. And he did very well at it. But that didn't mean he did well at life. Mm-hmm. And the panel I'm showing here, he's very smug and walking off set. They use different colors for different characters to show emotional connections, which is interesting artistic choice. I've seen it done in other works, and it can be very effective when it's done well. I think it is here. 
we see him walking off the set as Alex Trebek is congratulating him for a five-game winning streak. This is, in fact, what happened. Uh, for those not familiar with the shtick of Jeopardy and its longtime host Alex Trebek passed away this last year, it is a show where they give you presumably the answer to something and then you ask the question. You have to figure out the question to ask. So, for example, if Trebek says, this professor of Miskatonic University has repeatedly been passed over for his PhD because of the jealousy of the literature department, which wants to oppress him because of his radical worldviews towards literature, because they're all stuck in mid-20th century academia, you would say, who is Professor Hamby? Um, and this story really hits strong on themes of discussing questions and answers. And it doesn't say it explicitly, but clearly, Rostin, who's grown up asking questions as answers, is having trouble asking open-ended questions about why is his life not going the way he wanted it to and what will make him happy. Uh, and, and I wanted to show you the class, uh... Something outside manga, outside superhero comics, to something that was nonfiction and memoir-based. Memoirs are a powerful area. We'll talk more about memoirs in future classes when we talk about a number of important works. Uh, as well as other works that uh, defy these very simple genres we've talked about today. Uh, but I think the simple genres, such as the entertainment world of superhero comics, are important because they are read so widely. They're not always the most artistic or original works, but sometimes the works that are the most highly consumed are actually the most important. So, my assignment to you today. Do you think stories should create an agenda or simply reflect the world? We've talked today about this idea of social justice in comics. Uh, do you just care about being a greedy bastard, as I am, and reading as much diversity as possible? Or do you think creators should set out to change the world with an agenda and actually actively promote social justice? I'm kind of in the camp of saying both are true, actually. I was about to say both. Um, but as an assignment, and Rowan here gets to read through them. Yay. Uh, you need to not just say both. You can say both, but if so, say why. All right. You can contact me if you need to at Rogan Hamby on Twitter. That's at R-O-G-A-N-H-A-M-B-Y. I'm also available by email, Rogan.Hamby, R-O-G-A-N dot H-A-M-B-Y at gmail.com. Remember, my office hours when I will reply to you on Tuesdays between 3 to 5 while I stare into the endless void of purposelessness and the inability to say words of more than three syllables in life. All right. We will see you again next week when we discuss 70s Kung Fu comics and their relevance to a major upcoming uh, Marvel film, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Five Rings. And I will propose an argument as to why it should be set entirely in a convenience store in Toronto. Okay. <laughs> Bye.